Okay, Rock City cast number three today, guys. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the venues that have shaped our great city. And again, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to elaborate more on particular records and albums, and we've promised that we're going to tell you about our experiences of, of gigs and stuff like that. Mm. But hopefully that'll tie into a little bit about um, what we're going to talk about tonight. And this is... Um, Again, uh, something that's pretty close to our hearts, Jazz, in regards to all the venues that we've been at over the years and yeah. the live shows. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jay. Look, I, I think that the reason why we have to have a look at venues at this point in time is that um, after having a, had a look at a go-go, which is really the, the centre of, of the music experience for Melbournians, and then having a look at some of the bands and getting an overview and a feel for the types of bands that come out of Melbourne, it's really the venues that helped to shape the Melbourne music scene. And, and in particular, um, the associated groups that come with each of the particular venues. Now, we're going to talk about between uh, four or five and six uh, different venues today that have been really seminal in, in the Melbourne scene in, and in, in the music scene, sorry. And, and really, each one of them has a particular style or a particular association with bands. And, and that was really important, I think, in creating the the identity of Melbourne music as such. Yeah, for sure. And again, some of them are still around, some of them are, are no longer yeah. functioning and operating. And I mean, mine and probably everyone's favourite um, is the Tote in Collingwood. I've seen many great rock shows there and often classified as the home of rock. Mm. Um, and, you know, back right back in the early days, they were putting on shows that, from international artists like Bob Log and Mudhoney and interstate mm. bands like Tumbleweed. and But they operate, you know, seven nights a week and you can even go and see bands on a Wednesday, Thursday night and they've always been really good to, to local and independent bands and a lot of those bands that we've we've already spoken about, a lot of the, the great gigs that I've been to have been at the Tote. Mm. Got lots of fond memories from the Tote. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the, the important thing to, to note about the Tote was that it's really for an up and coming band. It was their first point of call, and, yeah, and you sure. could also be you could always be guaranteed a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night at the Tote. Yep. And uh, for for an up and coming band, it was a place to play an established venue um, where there were regular payers who, who would come regardless of the bands and. To give you a bit of experience, actually, in, in dealing with uh, music industry and, and uh, you know organising gigs, so I, I know from my own experience, when you first played the Tote, it was, it was quite a uh, a milestone moment for any young band. Um, a lot has obviously been said about the Tote, and, and there's been a lot of documentation about the rise and fall of the Tote and the rise again. So I don't want to get too much into the politics around around the Tote. It's really uh, for me, it was about the atmosphere that the Tote venue um, had for, for you as a gig goer. To give you a bit of a description of what the Tote was like, you'd walk into the front doors. It's on it's on a corner between um, Johnson and... I can't remember the other name now. It's in Collingwood, and uh, you walk through the corner door and you, you hit immediately with the front bar. Now, it was Johnson and Wellington. Johnson and Wellington. Yeah. Thanks. And it was famous during my uni days for dollar pots on a Monday night. And when the GST came in, it became dollar ten pots on a Monday night. Now I think it's about four dollars ten. However, <laughs> that front bar was was the air. It was a hub of activity, and it was all centered around the jukebox. It's renowned in Melbourne for having the best 
music jukebox in, in any pub. Um, I, I have distinct memories of going in there and putting on uh, Magic Dirt Amoxicillin and, and the, the recognition of everyone else in the bar when you put on a song that's you know, that they appreciated it was, it was a fantastic experience and it certainly exposed many a newcomer to the tote to um, much of the Melbourne sound. So the front bar was really where it was at. As you walk through the pub into to the back room where the bands would play and then there was also the outside uh, foyer and courtyard where if you were lucky there was a, a free barbecue at, at some gigs. But the the famed sticky carpets was something to experience it, and sticky is certainly the word for it. There was not really an, an ounce of fibre in that carpet. It was really just all, all muck and grime, but it was the the essence of rock and roll. Yeah, you know. for sure. And again, it, it's on the world map. It's mm. been in everything from, I think, NME magazine did a feature on it when yeah. the, the rise of the, the early 2000 retro <laughs> rock bands hit it big and the tote became quite popular and it's seen as a bit of a place to visit for overseas visitors and and for overseas bands alike and they'll still do international uh, acts every now and again and yeah, and they still do big big Aussie bands and yeah I mean oh, all, no, um, any any band worth their salt when if you're a big band and you you're looking to to return to your roots and do a secret show or something the tote's always the venue of choice yeah. and as Jason said um, you know, international acts looking for somewhere it, it, it's recognised and it, it's renowned. It, it's particularly, uh, as Jason mentioned, you know those sub pop era bands, particularly like Mud Honey. They they were frequent users of the tote and frequent visitors to the tote, and um, you know they have a, a very long lasting legacy. Yep, definitely some very very special and cherished moments at the tote. It's a venue that I'll never forget, and mm. um, I'd like to think that that one day. You know, it's the sort of venue that will still be around when my kids are old enough to go mm. and check it out. And, and um, yeah, as Joe said, there's no more than you need to say about it. Um, a recent DVD documentary put out called Never Say Die is yeah. something that's certainly worth a look at and um, yeah, give a bit of an idea of it for mm. anyone who hasn't seen that particular documentary of how important that is to to Melbourne uh, music industry. Yeah, so if you were a, a, a payer and you were looking for some down and dirty sludge rock and roll, the tote was your, certainly your first port of call. Now we talked about the, the demise of the tote and then the subsequent resurrection. There was, we, we have an issue in Melbourne with a lot of our venues closing and certainly uh, this next venue really marked the beginning of that closure of, of a lot of our venues. And I'm talking of course about the Punners Club, which is on Brunswick Street. And um, when it closed, it, as I said, it signalled the beginning of um, not a commercialisation, but there was a lot of um, interest in, in taking over the pubs and turning them into other ventures, which were significantly higher earners. And the Punters Club was in a prime location and it became the first of its type. And with it really came the end of an era because the Punners was... Unlike the Tote, which was very rock and roll orientated, the, the Punners Club was a far more diverse club and it was really for bands who had taken that next step up. They were looking for um, certainly a pathway out of the Tote, but it was really looking for bands that had a, a bit more 
um, I don't want to say mature age, but they were definitely a bit more dynamic, the bands that played there. And yeah. They were maybe intellectual, quasi-intellectual, or they, de- they definitely seemed to be an, an indie rock leaning. Yeah, but that, the beautiful thing about, about um, the punters too was that, that they put on hip-hop and they put on metal mm. and they put on indie and they, they put a lot of different shows on. And um, again, from playing in bands, a lot of my earliest gigs and memories of for, for playing at the punters club and it, it was it's always a great venue there was always people in there whether it be the front bar or the back bar but um mm. but just is right it absolutely sparked um this citywide sort of um how would you mass closure yeah, of venues, of, of, of venues and, and and with that became you know a loss of avenues for bands and it, it did force a change in, in the landscape around Melbourne, the musical landscape around Melbourne. Many, yeah. whereas bands were, were you know, sort of, the hub was around Collingwood, Fitzroy, that sort of area. They had to move further north out to Northcote yeah. and uh, subsequently out into the west as well. And it, it really changed the way that uh, venues promoted themselves and, and bands in particular. So. It, it, it was a great loss um, because it meant that opportunities were, were less uh, were less available. But speaking of you know famous um, gigs at the Punters Club, I have very fond memories of, of Augie March playing at the Punters Club. And I think they were a really good example of the types of bands that would play at the Punters Club. Yep. And to give you a physical description of what the Punters Club is like, it, it's in some ways similar to the Tote. However, the front bar was just this really long sort of thin strip of a bar and it had bench seats in it and um, Mike Patton did a, a solo show one there one day and I remember sitting there while you know he was sitting at the bar it was very much a, a place to go for a, for a lazy Wednesday afternoon beer if you'd finished uni or something and then it was quite an expansive band room which had about 300 payers in there so yeah a really nice venue with a great PA definitive definitive venue absolutely definitive venue in the in the melbourne music scene in the melbourne culture and which brings us on to uh, another venue that's just over the road from it the evelyn and now that was again a a venue that's been around for many years and um still going still going very strong i was there just the other night and um again a a great little venue um always um very diverse um put a lot of different acts on there and um I've been to some great shows at the Evelyn over the years, mm. and I'm sure a lot of Melbourne punters and listeners to Rock City Absolutely. would be um, familiar with the, with the type of shows that they've had there. I remember early on um, <clears throat> going there to see Ammonia and Automatic, mm. and uh, back in the early days, lots of something for Kate gigs. Yeah. Would you uh, would you agree that it was kind of the next step up again from the punters club in the hierarchy of where yeah, a band would play? I guess so. I mean, all of them were sort of the same size venue, yeah. so. I, I don't think so what would distinguish between playing at the Evelyn as opposed to playing at the Punters Well, I, I guess, I guess um, you're right. They, they probably had a lot of the, the, the crowd and regulars yeah. and locals in that, that North Fitzroy area that mm. would sort of frequent it and go for beers and mm. um, not necessarily be totally aware of whoever was playing all the time but would always just go in just to see who was playing, yeah. you know what I mean? So, um, but... You know that was a thriving little that that the Evelyn the Punters and the Tote mm. that little it was a little triangle that little triangle that was you know they were all within a hundred meters of each other and um, they were all you know, they all had 
every night of the week there were bands playing and, and that was the beauty of, of Brunswick Street in that area was that every night there was actually something happening musical wise and for me fond memories of, of the Evelyn are seeing the Icarus Lion play a show there and I think I almost that got kicked in the wild. face with a, with a Blundstone boot and <laughs> when Muse, a, a very young Muse came out and tried to play a promo show at the Evelyn which yep. um, concluded in, in a massive line around the corner so it, it was also the type of venue that international acts would often go to to, yep. to play. Yep. And then from there we go across the river to uh, the Esplanade Hotel in St Kilda. Again, the ESPY, Jazz, what can you say about the ESPY well, the institution? Well, the institution, absolutely, which is on the Esplanade, obviously, given its name, so it overlooks um, the harbour and, and the bay, St Kilda Beach. Um, a, a beautiful place to have a, a mid-afternoon Sunday beer, but more importantly, a, a place of... of just intense rock and roll at, yeah. its, at its core. Um, it's often talked about in, in Melbourne, the, the north-south divide across the river, yeah. and, and the SB is firmly in the south side of, of, of Melbourne. Now, as a south sider, having lived most of my life around St Kilda and near St Kilda, I'm a bit biased, but to me, the SB is, is the heart of the Melbourne rock sound, and, and it stems all the way back to the 70s when there were... Um, such bands as the birthday party you know nick cave's influence which is definitely a south side influence and that that sound is reminiscent and and has echoes all the way through melbourne music up until now and and the sb is really the birthplace of that yeah and st kilda perhaps not just the sb but the st kilda area yeah no definitely i'd agree with that and it's a massive venue and for all Mm. those people that have that have not been there before um it's got, you know, sort of three different band rooms. There's a lounge room at the front, um, what they call it, the lounge in, in the front bar, and then you've got the Gershwin room at the back. Yeah. And I've been to some ripping gigs in the Gershwin room. Oh, absolutely. You know, internationals. Um, I remember seeing Sun Cloto there a few years ago. It's really heavy shows, Magic Dirt, mm-hmm. um, you name it. it you know, anyone who's anyone's really played there. Yeah. And then they have smaller shows in the front bar and... Then they used to have a couple of different stages in the front bar. It's kind of gone through many guises and different shapes yeah. and 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 different rooms and stuff like that. It's certainly it been now, gentrified and the pool yeah, has been taken absolutely. out. It used to be the home of PBS's Cup Day Chaos. PBS was uh, an independent radio station that broadcast out of yep. St Kilda and Cup Day Chaos was a, a regular festival. And, you know, that to me was exemplified what the SP was about, you know, sausage sizzles bands playing from from midday to midnight yeah, and, yeah. And, and a really diverse lineup. But as we've said before, it was also a place for people in the south side to get their, their first foot in the door in terms yeah. of gigs. You could always be guaranteed playing at the front bar of the SB at some night of the week. So a, a really important venue. Uh, unfortunately now though it has you know been done up and, and gentrification is really the word for it. Um, yeah. And it, it's yeah. only a shell of what it what it used to be. Yeah perhaps started when they built all those flats above it. But still has amazing shows and True. put on a lot of rock shows and, and yeah, um, you know, still has the international acts that come through and, again, very diverse mm. as well, from hip-hop to metal to rock and roll and um, everything in between. So Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and, you know, again, uh, in that little pocket... The Esplanade Hotel, the Prince of Wales, and the Greyhound. Yeah. Um, the Prince is probably a, a bigger venue than that, as mm. far as um, 
as far as prestige, how could you describe? Well, the, 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 the Prince, Prince of Wales used to be a rock and roll um, bar as well, and a rock and roll venue. It's an upstairs venue. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, has, started. Yeah, it, it has a downstairs bar. Uh, the international bands or the bigger bands generally play upstairs, which is yeah. about a thousand people can fit up there. Nowadays, the, the Prince is really renowned for more dance or, or hip hop music, but the, the front bar was really um, a, a very down and dirty rock and roll venue and yep. as Jason said you know it's, it's the scene where the Dirty Three got their start um, and, and given that it was always cheap pots you know and, and always sunny and you're always near the beach it was very conducive to sitting and drinking and listening to rock and roll so yep. you know a really great venue yeah but I think you know so far we've talked about rock and roll venues and, and indie rock venues but the Greyhound and, and the Art House are, are two slightly different venues again they're they're really renowned in, in the Melbourne scene for, for punk rock and roll. Mm -hmm. The Greyhound is, is the St Kilda side of town and the Art House is, is right in town. Unfortunately, the Greyhound doesn't exist anymore, but it used to be and the place where you could see well. you know, any number of bikey gangs dealing truckers <laughs> dust out at the front door. That was really what it was renowned for. You know. But, yeah. um, the but back house, in the day, yeah. bands like um, X... Mm. and probably bands that were coming down from interstate like the saints at the time yeah. and really you know back early on probably all played at the greyhound and the espy and yeah, and um and then of course there's the art house which is which is um melbourne's punk rock institution yeah and um yeah any any punk rock band worth their soul has played at the art house punk and metal for sure absolutely and um you know again they, they've hosted some internationals um and th that is one venue that, that when they, they closed their doors down, I think they had a massive gathering there and a couple yeah. of thousand people turned up on the last night. Right. It, was, it was a week-long series event, it of events was. where, you know, ex-alumni of the art house, you know, came back. And like we said at the start, you know, the, each different venue had different bands and different, you know, sort of subcultures associated with it. And, you know, the art house was famous for, for bands like The Living End that came through... You know, you could see them playing in their early days you know, to you know, any number yeah. of players. Yeah, and, um, Mind Snare, One Inch Punch, H-Block, all yeah. those like really early Melbourne bands cut their teeth there That's and right. had this great roof that was like made out of material. Mm. It looked like a big haberdashery pillow sort of a thing. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was punk rock to the core, stickers everywhere, posters everywhere, toilet doors kicked off. Yeah. And, um, and it, it was the place for, for bands left of centre, like yeah. very much left of centre, to get, to get a go. Yeah. Any, anyone could be heard. Yeah. And uh, certainly if you were playing there, the PA was notoriously difficult to, you know, <laughs> to negotiate. back, yeah. Yeah, you know, it was, it was a great venue. And another one that will sorely be missed, but something that we, we felt compelled to talk about yeah. on Rock City. Mm, absolutely. And... Um, Probably the last venue that I wanted to touch on, and there's many, many more. And again, this is not a comprehensive guide. This is just the ones that we'd like to discuss. But a venue on uh, uh, Melbourne's uh, Chapel Street in Paran called the Duke of Windsor. Now, the Duke of Windsor, um, probably, I mean, uh, not where to begin. With where to begin with the Duke? Yeah, I mean, again, well, another venue that yeah. shut its doors down not long ago, but. During uh, for a small period there again for a small time, um, that was again put on the international map when uh, bands like Dallas Crane and Jet sort of cut their teeth there and, and made a big overseas and the Casanovas to a lesser extent and um, 
you know that some great memories great pub that was a venue that the bar was you could not escape watching the band if you went to the Duke for a beer you had to watch the band because they playing right there in the bar next to you so you couldn't escape it wasn't like you could go to another room and they had great bar staff and a great booker and um, they aligned themselves with major box and and um, the pictures would play their living end did a secret yeah. show there. Uh, that it, was a really it, good they, it was very much the epicenter of, of um, you know retro rock and roll there for for a period, as you said with with Jet. It was always a place where you could find Tim Rogers propping up the bar if if you needed to yep, to yep. get in contact with him. And you know it was the place of many fantastic stories and many great scenes. And um, you know it, it was one of those venues that just had um, such a short lifespan but had so many fantastic moments jam-packed into yeah, it. Yeah, it really It's almost did. mythological now. Yeah. The Duke of Windsor and anyone that, you know, t- reminisces about the Melbourne music scene will often refer yeah. to gigs that they saw at the Duke of Windsor. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, absolutely a, a seminal part of, of Melbourne music. And um, unfortunately, as Jason said, it, it's something that's closed down, but with all of these venues closing down, it always opens up new opportunities. And, yeah. you know, and we look forward to seeing some, some different places. And just the, tonight we were at the Art House's new um, inca- incarnation, The Reverence, which is in, in Footscray. Yep, which was awesome. Which is fantastic. So there's still hope for, for, for music and the Melbourne music scene. If you had to pick one gig from all those venues that really stick out in your mind. I'm looking at the page right now and there's so many that are flashing before my eyes, but yep. there is one in particular. Far um, away. Which one? Well, the Prince of Wales was a place that I used to, yep. to, to visit quite a lot growing up and, again, seeing lots of local and international bands. But one gig and one lineup that sticks out for me was the very first Smashing Pumpkins tour, and I saw that at the Prince of Wales. And yeah, right. The supports were Snout and Magic Dirt, and I think back to myself now, I thought, what a fucking lineup. Yeah. It was Smashing Pumpkins with Snout and Magic Dirt. Um, probably would have been around 95, 96, 97, or no, yeah, around right. that era. Yeah. And um, it was just a great night and a great show. It was sweltering. I think mm. they were out here to do the big day out shows, but um, it was amazing. Yeah, I'd, while you were talking and, and putting me on the spot, I was trying to remember um, a, a gig from that. And I, I mentioned it briefly, but I think the Icarus Lime, when, when I saw them at the Evelyn Hotel... It would have been a cracker. It was um, upon the release of their first album, Mono, and it was at the era where they were still all wearing their, their red ties <laughs> and their black suits. And um, there's five members of the Icarus Lime, for those who are unfamiliar with the band. They're from America, and they're kind of a... A, a punk rock slash spaz rock type <laughs> noise core noise yeah. and everything yeah. um, but my overwhelming memories of the guitarist boot almost going into my face as he leapt over his Marshall stack but just you know very violent and I felt very threatened and, and very absolutely vicious. alive you know, yeah. at the same time and that's what all good rock and roll should actually be I think 